Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. We're looking today at Mark chapter 4. If you open your Bibles and turn there, you can follow along. We're going to look this morning at a passage that you probably all are familiar with, and most likely you've heard at least one sermon on it in your life. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Follow along as I read. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with, uh, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boats, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. There was a manager in a large company who noticed a new man one day and told him to come into his office. What's your name? Was the first thing the manager asked the new guy. John, the new guy replied. The manager scowled. Look. I don't know what kind of place you worked at before, but I don't call anybody by their first name. It breeds familiarity, and that leads to breakdown in authority. I refer to my employees by their last name only, Smith, Jones, Baker, and I'm to be referred to as Mr. Robinson. Now, you got that straight? Yes, sir. What's your last name? Well, the new guy sighed. Darling. My name is John Darling. The manager replied, okay, John, the next thing I want to tell you is (laughs) this manager felt that he didn't want familiarity because it leads to a breakdown in authority. And the reason I would begin that way is because this is a passage that we're all very familiar with. Uh, I've probably heard in my lifetime 10 sermons in church on this passage. And the problem with that is that normally when this passage is preached, we tend to do the thing that we always do, which is put ourselves in the middle of it. And so you will have heard that in life, you're either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or what? Going into a storm. And that's true, isn't it? And the thought flow of this passage is, and Jesus is with you in your storms. That's a great sermon, and it's true, 
especially if you were preaching like from Hebrews and other places. Uh, and what happens when we preach sermons like that is while they say things that are true and meaningful and very helpful, they also kind of miss the point. Because at the center of the story is not you and your storms. We can tell what the point of the story is by the last verse. And usually in the Bible, that last verse is the rule of in stress. It's telling us what the point is. What's the point of this passage? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this passage is about who? Jesus. Now, he does have a role in your storm. It's just the role that he has is, is the role of the thing you should be more afraid of. Right? And so the, the familiarity that we have with this passage can lead us to kind of misread it. Especially since we don't know the Old Testament overtones that are going on here. This story was written using the, the structure of Jonah. And it, it has all kinds of Old Testament allusions to it. So that as you read this, the thing that you should be driven to, and this is where Mark has been driving us this whole time, is, all right, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Now that has a lot of bearing on your storm, because in your storm you need to know the Lord, and we'll get there. But the only way to have peace in your storm is to not be afraid and have faith in that guy, right? And so what I want us to do this morning as we look at this passage is, is to try and, 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 of course, think of it in the terms that we've heard it, but see even the deeper resonances uh, that are there. And so the main idea of this passage really is this, that by calming the storm, Jesus is demonstrating his divine authority over the forces of nature, and that calls for greater faith in him. This passage is to provoke awe in Jesus so that we ourselves are even asking, who then is this? And so who is Jesus? Well, the first thing that this text gives rise to, the first question is, who is Jesus then? And the second question is, why are you afraid? Who is Jesus and why are you afraid? afraid. If we're looking at it through the lens that Mark wants to look at it through, this is the main question. Who is Jesus? Well, the first thing we know is that Jesus is greater than Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah, don't you? Jonah is caught in a storm and the captain of this, the boat comes up and basically says, don't you care about what's going on? Because Jonah was what? Sleeping. And Jonah knows what's up, and he says, well, if you want this thing to calm down, then what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to throw me in the water. And the, the guy's like, no, we'll throw everything else first. He's like, throw me in the water. Uh, and as soon as Jonah is thrown into the water, the sea and the wind calm down. So when this storm is going on, uh, and the, the disciples come up to Jesus, and they say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And by the way, especially in original language, that's a rude question, the way that it's phrased. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's so rude that when Matthew and uh, Luke 
who used Mark as one of their sources, when they tell this story, they change the wording of the question. Because it's like, dude, you don't even care here. Don't you care that we're dying? And instead of waking up and saying, all right, chuck me in, I'm like Jonah, Jesus doesn't jump in. What does Jesus do? He, he just says, he doesn't peace be still, he actually says, be muzzled. That's what he says, be muzzled. And in a day when uh, men who tried this kind of thing had to use long incantations, like people tried to do this kind of thing, but for those of you, I always go back to Lord of the Rings. You know Gandalf, if he wanted to do something, he had to close his eyes and really concentrate and mutter an incantation under his breath, and then something kind of happened. This may have been what they possibly expected. Jesus just kind of stood up and, all right, be muzzled. And like Jonah, the sea was calm and the winds died down. And they were good Old Testament Bible readers. They would have known what's going on here. Who was it that calmed the sea when Jonah was thrown in? It was God. And now Jesus stands up himself and he says, be muzzled. And in the Greek, it's really emphatic that not only does the wind die down, but the sea calms. It'd be impressive enough if the wind just died down and the sea would still be kind of waiting to settle. But Jesus said, be muzzled. And the, the waves immediately calmed and the wind died down. This is someone greater than Jonah. As a matter of fact, and we've mentioned this before when we went through Revelation, uh, I'm going to preach through Genesis 1 one of these days because it's one of the most amazing and important texts of Scripture. And I'm not even going to touch on the evolution debate. Did Moses know what evolution was? So he didn't write Genesis 1 as an anti-evolutionary tract. He wrote it with specific intent. And when all we ever do is read it saying this is an anti-evolutionary tract, we never even get close to the point that Moses had. All right? We can leave that whole debate aside. The Bible's true. Amen? It's so true, as a matter of fact, we should care about what its questions are rather than ours. And the thing is, in uh, the book of Genesis, the, the image there that you get in Genesis is that Yahweh God comes down and there's a world that is tohu wabohu, dry and arid. Uh, and what he does is he controls and he separates and he pushes back the chaos. It says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and the Lord told the waters where to go. The sea in the Jewish mind, mythically represented chaos. The Gentile lands were uh, like the sea, always rumbling and rolling and, and tumbling. And God was the one who could control the sea. That's, of course, as we said before, why in Revelation there's a verse that says, and there is no sea. It's like in the new heavens and the earth, we can't go to the beach. No, no. What it's saying is, is that anything that is chaotic is completely under control. This is why when we read Psalm 104, it talks about the Lord controlling the waters. Or Psalm 107 speaks of God stirring up a tempest at sea that causes sailors to melt in fear. And in Psalm 107, it says they cry to the Lord in their distress. And he whispers and he stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea were hushed. Psalm 65, you are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea. You establish the mountains by your strength. You still the roaring of the seas. Psalm 89, 9. Ezra the, Ethan the Ezraite says, you, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you 
still them. In other words, for Jesus just to stand up and go calm down and everything immediately to obey. That, that's the point of this passage. It is that Jesus is the ruler of the seas and therefore he's the Lord. He's the Lord. It's interesting that at his command in, in Mark it says there's a great, it's the, the, the Greek word megale, right? The megalodon, huge thing. A great storm, it's replaced by a great calm. And all of a sudden, these disciples of his knew that there was something more scary than the storm. And as we'll see in a moment, overcoming fear is about learning to be afraid of the right things. Right? And don't anybody come to me after the service and go, but the Bible says that where love is perfected, there is no fear. We're just not good readers today. In the Bible, there's good fear and there's bad fear, obviously, right? And in the presence of God's love, there's none of the bad kind and there's all kinds of the good kind. So the disciples asked this climactic question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey them? And what does the whole Old Testament scream? It's God, yo, <laughs> right? It's the Lord. Yahweh is among you. But not only does this passage, in answering this question, who is this? Not only does it teach us that Jesus is the Lord, it kind of also teaches us that Jesus is the man. Interestingly enough, because when the, when the storm begins to stir up and churn up, where is Jesus? It's asleep. And they say it's on a cushion. It's probably a ballast bag. You know what ballast is? Like when you have sailboats, if the wind is knocking you, this is why you take these weighted bags and you throw them to the other side of the boat so that you can stay upright and kind of keep going into the wind. Uh, they actually found a, a Galilean fishing boat back in the 1980s. It was almost completely preserved. It's about 26 and a half feet long. The sides are about this high. Uh, and there's just this little, um, like, shelf that's built in it that if you needed to, you could crawl under and sleep. This is the only time in the Gospels where it's recorded that Jesus slept. He had just been teaching all day. He had been doing miracles, and he was what? Tired. But not only is the man, in the sense that his humanity is, is kind of being held forward at the same time that the biggest show of his divinity is held forward, he's, he's also the man in another sense. That in the midst of this great storm, when everybody else was freaking out, what was Jesus doing? Throughout the rest of Mark, the disciples are going to fail repeatedly through a combination of pride, lack of faith, and inability to comprehend what's going on. And even here, as Jesus is standing up and asking them, where in the world is your faith? He's also doing something amazing. He's demonstrating the fact that he really trusted God on our behalf. So when the storm um, came through... Right? Jesus was demonstrating the way that a human being who is rightly related to God should act. He was so calm, he slept. Now, when we say, listen to me, when we say we're saved by faith, of course we mean we're saved by our faith in Jesus, right? But in a deeper sense, we're saved by faith. We're saved by Jesus' faith in God as believing for us as demonstrating for us, as living the life for us that we should have lived, 
He entered into this life innocent. He left this life virtuous. Jesus here, when they say, who is this? He's not only God himself, he's also truly man. And of course, Mark wants us to see this because both of these things are going to come together when Jesus dies on the cross as our representative. And because we had offended God's honor, we owe God an infinite debt and we cannot possibly pay it. But because we owe it, someone who is a man must pay it. And coming together in the gospel, we see Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, being both for us what we need and living for us the life that we should have lived. And that's why he's able to stand on the cross as our substitute, which is why you should trust in him today. Jesus also believed for you. Well, that's the first question. Who is this? Well, Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is the man. And again, I just point this out as we go through Mark. I've tried to make a point of this because we're not good readers of the Bible, because we read the Bible as if it's a scientific textbook, because we read the Bible as if the best way to read it is always literally, we usually miss the best stuff. And coming out of that, you got to read it literally mindset comes the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus is just God's <coughs> first creature. He's not God himself. And someone who's a good reader of the Bible, who takes in the ancient Near Eastern context and takes into account the Old Testament, reads a section like this and goes, friends, you are grossly mistaken. The Bible clearly says in a thousand places that Jesus is the Lord. And so that leads to this first question, which really is the main point of the passage. Who is this? Well, this is the Lord. This is the man. And this whole idea of the gospel comes together. And we really need that because here's the thing. The Bible assumes that the thing you need most in your storms is a sure knowledge of God's power and sovereignty as much as you are sure of his love. The Bible assumes that you really, really need to know that God is in charge of every single bit of it. Sometimes we just want to know that Jesus is with us, and of course he's with us. They ask, do you not care that we're perishing? Of course he cares. But all the care in the world ain't going to help you if he's not the Lord, right? And so the Bible really wants you to have a big view of God, and what our fear and our anxiety betrays about us is that we don't have nearly a big enough view of who God is. Why do I read theology so much? Is it because I'm a nerd? Yes. But even more so, it's because I'm an anxious nerd. And I need, I need a big God who in the midst of my trials is bigger than any of them. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the man, and he's the Lord. And you would miss the point of this if you thought that this was all about you. Who, who's always the hero in any Bible story? That's Jesus, right? We would probably be behind the disciples yelling. Second question that we need to ask this morning, and this is Jesus' question, why are you afraid? Don't you hate that question? <clears throat> Why am I afraid? It's a big storm, right? 
the way that the topography of uh, Israel works is the dead, the, the dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee are connected. And they are part of a rift, all right? It's actually a rift that actually goes down into Africa, the Great Rift Valley. Uh, and so the Sea of Galilee is actually the lowest freshwater lake on earth. And it's very deep, okay? And, and it's surrounded by mountains. And so what happens is uh, the, the heat kind of sits down in that basin and just starts baking on the, the top of that water. And then cold air from these mountains, particularly the ones up north, will roll in off these high peaks. And you know how this goes when the pressure is low and cold air and warm air meet. What happens? Boom. Storms happen. Bad storms. As a matter of fact, in 1992, there was one storm on the Sea of Galilee that generated 10-foot-high waves on the lake, causing damage to the city of Tiberias. These things, because they came down so quick, could catch you uh, out at sea easy. And of course we know this. These were fishermen. They had been on this lake their whole life, so the fact that they were absolutely freaking out means that this must have been a bad one. And Jesus is asleep, and he stands up, and he, and he says this. He said to them, why are you so afraid? And then he asked another question, and I hate this question. Have you still no what? What is, in Jesus' mind, what is the antidote to fear? So it's not answers, is it? It's not working it all out. It's not seeing to the end. It, and, and so much of our fear happens because we spend so much of our lives under the delusion that we actually know what's going on. And then what happens is we get into a situation where we can no longer rely completely on our ability to work it out, right? And I'm not saying here that faith is unreasonable. I'm saying that reason, I promise you, you cannot reason yourself out of an anxiety attack. Eventually, you can start to. It's just the reasons that you give yourselves are ones based on faith. If you have anxiety, it's because you have a lack of what? Now, are there physical things involved? Yes. Are there all kinds of things that we can use to help battle our anxiety? Yes. Uh, but in that mix is the fact that we have not quite learned to trust. So if you spend a lot of time worrying about what the day is going to bring, if you spend a lot of time worrying about how so-and-so is going to respond, if you spend a lot of time worrying about how your kids are going to turn out so that you end up manipulating and trying to gain control over all these situations, this is all you're ever going to do. Is that any way to live? No. At some point, it comes down to this question, is God good is God strong and is God for me? And until you can answer yes to those questions, you are set up to fear. And I say this as someone who has gone through long seasons of panic. You will never find a more sensitive ear to, about anxiety than mine, but you will also never find a more resolute person who says, you just don't trust. And because you don't trust, you end up yelling at people you shouldn't yell at. And because you don't trust, you end up trying to manipulate all kinds of situations. And in reality, you would just be a whole lot better if you just believed that God was good 
God was in charge. And because of his grace, he's actually on your side. Have you not learned to trust me yet? Jesus' sleep indicated that he had learned to trust. And what he is getting at here, because it says, I love this, in verse 41 it says this, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, in the Greek it's, it's a weird construct. It's like, and fearing they feared, which means even after the storm and everything had calmed down, when Jesus said those words, uh, and, and the, the sea stilled and calmed down, then they were even more afraid. But this was a better kind of fear. One of my favorite bloggers is a guy named John Bloom. Listen to what he says. Fear is such a powerful force in our experience. Fear is designed by God and has a wonderful protective benefit for us when it functions as God designed it. Instinctual fears are tremendous mercies. Amen? Yeah, protecting us from danger before we even have time to think. I mean, you see a snake, you jump. You don't contemplate. You, you, you move. Hopefully you move. Right? I mean, if a bull is running towards you, there's a good reason you get that. What is this feeling in my stomach as this 1,200-pound animal is rushing? What should I think? No. Move, right? Fear is good when it is used as God designs it. There are rational fears. There are fears we have time to think about. And they can operate under the governance of faith. They can protect us from all manner of foolish and sinful impulses and from external deceptive evil. But for most of us, Bloom says, fear does not function as God designed it. It is not under the governance of our trust in God and therefore wields an excessive, distorting influence over our thinking and behaviors. If fear is misplaced, we think and act wrongly. Misplaced fear becomes a tyrant that imposes constrictive limits and leaves us debilitated in some or much of our lives. Under its rule, we don't do what we know we should because we're afraid. And then Bloom asked this, can we really be free from these excessive fears? Jesus answers, yes. And what does he say the escape is? Fear transfer. After Jesus stilled the storm and rebuked them, they were filled with great fear and said, who is this? They felt great fear. But this fear of Jesus was very different than their fear of the storm. Their fear of Jesus wasn't oppressive. It didn't impose constrictive limits or leave them debilitated and cowering. This fear opened up a universe of possibilities to them. What was dawning on them in the boat was that this person who was with them had absolute supreme power over all aspects of both nature and supernature. In other words, when you have fear, there is something in your mind that is more immediate and bigger than God. There's a presence that feels closer to you and more dominating of the situation, whether it be death, whether it be disease, whether it be any kind of sickness, whether it be people will no longer love me and leave me, whether like me you worry you're going to lose your mind, whether you worry there is something in your vision that is big and is close. And this is exactly why uh, Jesus equates fear with a lack of faith. And really what Jesus is equating fear with is not fearing the right things. Because who is always bigger and who is always closer? 
So you don't even believe it. They're <laughs> like, who is always bigger and who is always closer? So when the numbers don't add up in the checkbook and that becomes the biggest thing in your vision, what should be bigger? Right? When you get the diagnosis, what should be bigger? And I'm not up here pretending like if I got a diagnosis tomorrow, I wouldn't end up as a blubbering mess on the floor. But even in those moments, you'd be able to say to me, Drew, who's closer and who is bigger? Who's closer and bigger than the thing that you fear? That's why when Jesus stilled the waves and the sea, the disciples didn't go, I'm glad he was with us in the storm. They had a big God standing right in front of them, and they realized that he was bigger and closer than all the things that they faced. So, so all the sermons are true, aren't they? They're, they're all true. You are either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or going into a storm. The sermons are also true that the very reason they were in the storm is because Jesus said what? Let's get in a boat and let's go across. You think Jesus didn't know what was going on? Of course Jesus was leading them right into the storm. He intends these storms for your good. The problem with the prosperity gospel and this idea that if you just got it all right and prayed for favor, you'd have all the land and ladies and money that you'd ever want and things would be great. And you'd be... The problem is, I don't know about you, I've never ever grown when things were good. So of course God sends you into storms. It's not a lack of his presence. It is his very presence and love. They would not have learned who Jesus was except that they were in the storm. And what they needed to learn is a bigger fear and a better fear that led to freedom. That is, the fear is the thing that is closest and biggest in your eyes. And as long as that is the Lord you will feel freedom and joy uh, in ways that you may not have yet experienced. So Jesus is asking us to believe a few things. Number one, that God is, that he is bigger, that he is good, and listen to me, that he is not indifferent. He's not indifferent. Jesus sent these guys into a storm that made them ask, God, do you even care? So, of course, he's going to send us into storms where we ask the question, God, do you even care? The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. What's that book about? A dude who was sent into a trial so that he asked, Lord, do you even care? And what you're learning through these storms is you learn to trust and keep God bigger and closer in your eyes as you're learning, of course, he cares. Not only did he arrange this, he is using this to the degree that I respond in faith for my good and for his glory. The author of Hebrews reminds his readers of this. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The apostle Peter encouraged believers to cast all their anxiety on him because he what? Cares for you. Writing to the Romans, Paul said these words, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when they ask, do you even give a rip that we're dying? Jesus, of course, of course I care. Be still, be calm. And so this morning... Are you convicted 
that Jesus is the Lord over the chaos. And then listen to his question. Why are you so afraid? It's a great question to ponder, isn't it? Well, Lord, I'm afraid because I actually value being in my right mind more than I value being in your hand. Why am I so afraid? Because I value not being poor like I grew up more than I value seeing your hand meet all my needs. I'm afraid of losing my spouse because I watched my parents go through a nasty divorce and I'm so afraid that that will ever happen to me that I just have both hands locked down on my spouse in such a way that is killing them and killing us. Why are you so afraid? I'm so afraid because I've been hurt before and I'm going to build up thick walls so that I'm never hurt again because I believe that hurt is bigger than your power to heal. Why are you so afraid? It's a great question the Lord asks us, and it's one we should ponder, and ponder it with the understanding that he cares, uh, that he is big, and that he rules over the chaos, and that those who put their trust in him will never be ashamed. And so this morning, we need to put our trust in the Lord who has control over the chaos, especially over the chaos that we call death. He's demonstrated that by his crucifixion on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead to show that he is indeed Lord and master over all things. We need not be afraid. And I probably will be tonight. Bless him for his grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would seal it upon our hearts so that we would know that you are our helper and we should not be afraid. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.